Matthew 24, verses 29 through 35. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from, the, from one end of heaven to the other. And then Jesus does something that I love. He's like, you know, he's teaching his disciples, and they're like, what in the world does that mean? And he's like, it's kind of like this tree. Look at the tree. And then he says, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So one of the reasons why human beings get up and talk about an ancient text every single week and not just something like off the top of their heads or just tell stories that are interesting um, is because of what Jesus just said. He just said that all that you know, heaven and earth, will pass away, but his words are what's eternal. And so we get up and we talk about this every single week because this is what lasts. This is what will not go away. And what this tells us is that Jesus Christ has brought heaven back to earth and he will sustain and redeem all of it. Um, Even though what you know of as your reality begins to crumble, uh, there is something eternal and we have access to that power through his word. So, when we pray, uh, we're, we're engaging in a spiritual, eternal act, and so I want you to pray with me. Even if you're not familiar with praying, what prayer is, is simply offering your heart and emotions back to God. And you're saying to God, this is how the Bible ends, you're saying to God, come, come into me, speak to me. Um, and so, do that, do that with me right now. Okay, we'll spend some moments in silence, and I want you to ask God to come right now. Let's pray. Lord, it is a, a daunting thing to ask, but in our, in our deepest heart of hearts, we know that we uh, were made to be in union with you. And at the end of it all, uh, what we see is the bride, your people, uh, turning to you and saying, come, Uh, come back, come into us. And we we ask now, Lord, that you would make make us both uh, mind and body um, open to your presence and that we would say right now as we sit under the teaching of your word, Um, however you want to come, whenever you want to come, uh, we invite you. 
And so, Lord, speak now. Your servants are listening. In Christ's name, amen. Um, so, if you were here last week, you heard Kyle Lindgren give his story. And I, I love Kyle's story, and I love thinking about his story when we think about Advent, when we think about Christmas, because Kyle was sitting in his apartment in the dark of his mind, in the dark of what he was experiencing in his life, and then he said, God showed up. And what Advent is, is sitting in that place. If any of you have ever uh, lost loved ones, you know what that feeling is like, where you don't know where else to turn or where else to go, and, and God oftentimes, oftentimes I've seen this, I've experienced it myself, I've seen it in you guys, um, God shows up in some mysterious way when things are the darkest. And the reason why is because light, and you guys know this if you just think about how light and dark work, light is most bright when it's most dark. That's how it works. And so the gospel in your life oftentimes follows this pattern of like when you have lost all hope, uh, God tends to show up. Now, many of you, as I've talked to you throughout your life, um, you have had experiences where God has shown up to you in the past. And these aren't like things that um, make you crazy, but you really have had an experience of God in a way that, that is uh, undeniable. And what life, why life is so challenging is that if you have that in the past, you have all this life that you're experiencing in between, and it's like, did that actually happen? Like, was that real, or like, am I, am I like legit crazy? And this is where the disciples are going to be at very, very soon. And that's what Matthew's audience is going to experience as they watch what was the epitome of their greatest hope, the temple, crumble by Rome. Rome was going to surround Jerusalem and destroy the temple. And that was going to feel like to them that the whole world was crumbling. And Jesus, knowing this, if you go back up to the very beginning of Matthew 24, the disciples, and it says this in Luke, the disciples are... Um, they're looking at the temple and they're like, look at all these beautiful stones, Jesus. And Jesus is like, that's all, that's all coming down. All temples on this earth are coming down. Now, this passage today, the reason why we're looking at it is because I want, I want you to imagine what, what the disciples are experiencing. And then I want you to imagine what Matthew's audience is. Matthew, the gospel writers, they're pastors. They're trying to help people cope and manage and get through suffering with the hope of the gospel. And if you were to go all the way back to the very beginning of our text, that the temple is what's on their minds. This is, this is why Jesus is saying all this apocalyptic stuff. The temple represented many things, but the main thing, and I bet even you kids, I bet you know this, what does the temple represent? It represents a place where people meet God. The temple represented where God and people could commingle, where they could get near to God. And God chose the temple in the Old Testament as the medium by which he wanted to be with human beings. It was a picture of the Garden of Eden. And he did this throughout the, the wilderness years in, in a cloud by day. 
And so anytime you hear the word cloud, don't just think like, okay, there's a cloud, but the cloud represented what's called the Shekinah glory of God, that God's presence is, is here, and we better be careful, and we better be prepared to worship. We better be prepared to, to live in light of his presence. Now, 37 years after this happened, what I just read, Jerusalem would surround, or the, Ro- the Roman army would surround Jerusalem, and that was a very, very terrible time for the Jews. And Jesus is saying, when you see this happening, when you see this happening, get out. Get out of the city. Because what's about to happen is that the temple is about to crumble. And it's going to seem like your whole world is crumbling. And Jesus is telling his disciples this so that they would not be surprised when their surrounding circumstances feel totally out of control. Okay? Now, uh, what does that mean? <laughs> what could that possibly mean for you? Uh, I, just to put it in our perspective, imagine, imagine Memorial Stadium was literally infused with God's presence. Okay? And like, you actually believe that, and everybody knew it. And the goal of Memorial Stadium was to get, to get the whole world to come into it so that they could experience God. Um, that's, that's the meaning of the temple for the Jews, okay? And imagine a bunch of Iowans came in and crumbled it, you know? These darn Iowans. Um, th- this would have been like so disorienting to every Jewish person in the first century, the abomination of desolations, right? And the point Jesus is making for his disciples and the point of Matthew, the writer of the gospel, was this. Don't be surprised. Don't be afraid. When these things take place in Jerusalem, and it's going to be terrible, he's saying, you must remember, you must, that I came to you, and I will come again. And in the meantime, trust that I am with you. Verse 30 there will appear in heaven, when you see these things, there will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and everyone will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And then he, he says, you see this fig tree? Verses 32 through 35, Jesus tells his disciples, look, look at this fig tree. You see the leaf? You know when the leaf changes, when the leaf changes, you know by the changing of the seasons on earth that it's about ready for this thing to be, to be ripe. And so he says, and this is kingly language, Jesus tells his disciples, when you see these things take place, know that he is near at the very gates. And he says, truly this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So whatever is going on has relevance for the actual disciples of Jesus and that it would have helped them face the reality of what they were about to experience with courage. And so whether it's the disciples or Matthew's audience or future generations like us today, here's the one thing I want to draw out of this text and during this Advent season. Knowing that Jesus will appear in the past, or knowing that Jesus has appeared in the past and will appear in the future gives us courage and resilience to face the present reality. 
knowing that Jesus has come in the past and will come again in the future, is the thing that gives us resilience and courage to face whatever it is that you're facing right now. It has that kind of power. And the meaning of Christmas, which is God's presence on earth, gets lived out through human beings when you and I become witnesses of what Jesus has done in the midst of our suffering. That's how God's presence gets lived out and known in the world right now. Through you, when you witness of Jesus' presence in the midst of your suffering. And, uh, you know, these simple, these simple instructions um, <laughs> in, in both Matthew and in the book of Acts, it talks about this too. One of the most important lessons we can learn in life is that uh, God doesn't give us the exact when and how of his plans. He doesn't. But he does give us the what. And so, uh, for instance, after Jesus rose from the dead, um, he was about to ascend to the clouds back to God, okay? And the disciples are looking at him in, in Acts 1 verse 6, and they're like, okay, you did everything. You died, you rose again, you just resurrected. Now is it time for you to bring the kingdom back to Israel and to restore the kingdom? Do you remember what he said? He literally said, that's not for you to know. And then Jesus says, you disciples will receive power when the Holy Spirit descends on you and that you are to go out and give that presence of God to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And what that means is that God's presence is now housed in his people. In the in-between time of his first and second coming. And this is the calling of a Christian. You are to wait with faith, knowing that Jesus came once and he'll come again. And testify what he's done in your lives. This is like, uh, this is loud for a Sunday morning. Um, Jesus' first coming and his promise of a future Come, uh, return was enough to keep the disciples in the entire early church faithful in the present. And so um, you may say, okay, well, what does that, like, what does that have to do with, with me? What does that have to do with the present reality that I face? And uh, I want to talk about three implications of that from, from this text that, that Jesus would have given the disciples and Matthew would have given the early church because of those two realities. So, so one, and then we're actually, uh, Advent sermons are also, I should let you know, Advent sermons are shorter than normal, praise God. Um, and so we actually are, are wrapping up here um, pretty, pretty soon. But one, believing in Jesus' first and second coming means that you can literally face anything. Almost all the disciples uh, that were following Jesus would, would be killed. And the reason why they were killed is because they kept saying things like, Jesus was Lord. And you didn't say that around people in Rome because there was only one Lord in Rome named Caesar. And they also were going to get killed by the people of religious power, the Jewish people in the synagogues, because they kept saying that Jesus was God. And so uh, this strange thing happened with the early church, with the early followers of Jesus, the more 
that the people and political and religious power killed these early Christians, the more the church grew. And I really want us to think about that, especially here in the United States, but especially in the Midwest. That the church can thrive in hostile environments. I want you to let that sit. That the church can thrive in hostile environments just like it did in Acts. And the reason why is because Advent means that you can face anything. And the light shines brightest in the, dark, in the darkness. The early Christians, this is how their light shined. Their early Christians were known for their non-retaliation. For when they were getting fed to lions or lit, lit on fire, they literally got lit on fire. They didn't retaliate. And they believed that whatever they suffered for following Jesus, God noticed and he would take it into account. Because, point two, believing in Jesus' first and second coming means that you don't have to be the judge. You don't have to enact justice in the present moment for yourself. The early Christians didn't take matters into their own hands. And if you trace most of the church's problems throughout history, it centers on our failed belief in the fact that God is bringing his judgment and will. When Jesus returns, he promises to judge all that's gone wrong and judge every injustice and everything that's ever been committed against you or against other people. And if you just think about that, all of the, like, think about your own life. All of the tiny little, let's say, microaggressions that have been committed against you. Let's say somebody lies about you. Let's say somebody hurts your child. Let's say somebody trashes your character and you know that you don't deserve it. You know what Christians are supposed to do when that happens? It's actually the only pathway out of further hurt. It's to wait for God to sort it out in the end. It's to wait. Knowing that you don't have the wisdom to judge. If you have enemies right now, what is far more powerful than getting them back or holding a grudge or allowing bitterness to take root in your life against someone or a group of people is to believe that God sees it. And he will pay back all that's been done to you. When we throw out the judgment of God, which modern people are fond of doing, we throw away any emotionally coherent reason for dealing with the pain and anger in our hearts. And what that does, y'all, is that it infuses evil and violence back into the world. It's a perpetual cycle. And what the gospel does, when God shows up, he says, I will take care of that. Let me. You don't have to. This is one of the things that the incarnation teaches us. God physically comes to tell us, I see your predicament. And his, coming promises to re- his second coming promises to restore and redeem all that's been broken and lost at the end of it all. And that's what anchors us to have poise and non-retaliation in the present. To let go of anger. To not make people pay for what they've done. Non-retaliation is the most lethal blow that you can give an enemy because you are giving somebody over to Jesus. You're giving them over. 
And do you know what Jesus can do? Jesus can actually judge far more exhaustively than you ever could. Or he will show grace. And it's not for you and I to decide who gets what. Because we can't know. And anybody who's ever sought to know, to decide who gets what, you know it. That's too big of a burden to carry for you. That's why it's exhausting. That's why it drives you crazy. Because you don't know who should get what. Because there's only one judge. And if you think about your own life for a second, there's a deep sense into which God does not give us what we deserve. He didn't come into the world to condemn, but to save. And clearly, from the pages of Scripture, God loves people so very much that He let us deconstruct His body. That's what happened. The Maker, the fabric of the universe, allowed the creation to desecrate His body And when that happened, it was like the world was being decreated, as the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it. That the whole world was was turning into gloom because we snuffed out the light of the world. And it was as as if God was saying, look, y'all, if I'm willing to send my son under the curse of judgment for you, trust me with the ways in which you've been hurt. Trust me in whatever circumstances you are facing around. Trust me if the very temple itself crumbles and it feels like the sky is falling. I know. And if you have a God like that and God doesn't condemn, then we can trust that he can hold judgment well and that it will be good and right and complete and we don't have to enact it for ourselves, but we can wait with expectant hope. I'll give you an example and then we'll close up. Um, I, I knew a, uh, a young woman once in her 20s that was a Christian, and she and her mom had a very conflicted relationship. Her mom wasn't a very religious woman, um, and the daughter was, and she decided to start praying for her mother, uh, for her to become a Christian, actually. Um, but there was, a, there was a tension there because she had been hurt so much by her mother. What happened is that over time, as she prayed for her mom over the years, um, her mom actually became a Christian. And God started, God showed up to her mother and started softening her and softening the way that she was towards, towards her daughter. And what happened with the daughter is that she began to get softer towards her mom, so much so that she basically got the whole relationship got mended, and so she, she began to go to her mother for, for deep sources of love and encouragement in a way that she never would. Now, over the years after that happened, several years into that mending, she said her mom confessed to her um, something that happened to her when she was a little, a little girl, uh, something very terrible and tragi- tragic. And this daughter said, she, she was telling me, she said, you know, um, when I heard that, when I heard what happened to my mom, it was as if every, every hurt that I experienced through her, uh, I just had immediate grace for. I had, it was almost like I had a immediate forgiveness because of what happened to her. 
Now, the reason why that's important is because you, you, know what, you know what happened? This daughter released her mother from the grip of trying to judge. She, re- she released her mother unto the hands of the Lord because she realized in that moment, I did not have the perspective. I did not have the perspective to know the reason why she was hurting me is because she was hurting and so this daughter was like, okay, Jesus, I, I didn't know that. I didn't have the wisdom. And she said she felt immediate, immediately uh, relaxed <laughs> at peace. And that's the third thing that Jesus can do when you believe in his first and second coming. It gives you rest and peace. If you really have a God who's experienced the worst for you and is completely attuned and attached to your pains and sorrows and hurts, you can have rest. Just, ima- just imagine that just for a moment. Like the, the intimacy by which we know how we've been hurt, how thoroughly we play it out in our minds. What if God knows your hurt better than you know your own hurt? What if it hurts him more than it hurts you? If your judge is that attentive to you, then you can have peace. You can have rest. You can trust that all things will work out and you'll begin to long for it. You can go to sleep when your enemies are surrounding you, as the Psalms say. And I I love this part of, of Kyle's story last week where he had drunk himself into a stupor, but what really gave him rest was that God showed up and pressed in on, on Kyle and he said, Kyle, aren't you tired? And then that's when he fell asleep. <laughs> yeah, I'm real tired. And that's because it's the kindness of God that changes people. It's what leads us to repentance. It's not his harsh judgment. And that's what Christmas is about. God's so kind to you that he showed up. And he'll show up again. And the point of life up into that great and final day is to turn to the Lord like you see in the book of Revelation. It's so interesting. We're about to confess it in the assurance of forgiveness, is to turn to the Lord and the bride and the spirit say to the Lord, come. Come. Imagine if you did that. Right now, imagine if, if you turned to God and you said, I want you to come into me. Right now. In any way you want to. And you didn't hold back. What would that do? It would make a community that would be able to house God's presence. We become Christmas. We are Christmas because God's in us. That is your future self speaking to you. The bride. That's your future self saying that's who you truly are. Who you truly are isn't in the grave. Who you truly are isn't the false self that's always bitter. Who you truly are isn't the one that's always victimized and always hurt and always trying to figure out how you can get more. Who you truly are is God's son and daughter. Open to him, saying, come into me, infuse me. That's what Christmas is about. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would come into us and um, at your first uh, entry into this world as a child, 
um, you opened yourself up to us. And so help us by the Spirit to open ourselves up to you so that we can have this mutual back and forth that the Trinity um, created the world out of this great love, this great mutuality of peace and rest and knownness. And so, Lord, we thank you for um, this meal that we're about to partake. We even thank you for the ways in which uh, we know we've failed to do this and that we get to confess because there is no fear with you. And so, Lord, come uh, and expose us that we may be uh, in you, in you and us. In Christ's name, amen.